Good morning, church. Before we jump in today, I wanted to thank you for sending me to the EFCA Theology Conference a couple of weeks ago uh, in Chicago. It was cold, um, so that wasn't great. And it rained one day, and I was drenched. It wasn't good, but uh, there was, you might say, a drenching of godly information, so that was good too. Um, The Theology Conference is something the, the EFCA puts on every year. If you're not aware of it, usually in Chicago, connected to the, the seminary that our denomination has, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So there are speakers who, who talk on a, a given theme, and it's a great time of fellowship and learning and uh, great discussion, challenging information. So, so this year, the, the topic was on the doctrine of God, <clears throat> and that, you know, to many might sound like theology in general, right? Isn't it all about God? But this was really on the first statement of faith in the EFCA, what we believe about God, that he is Trinitarian, that he is eternal, that he is blessed, that he is love, so on and so forth. And it was just a great time of of blessing for me. So I wanted to thank you, put that out there up front. If you have any questions about the EFCA Theology Conference, let me know. I'd love to talk to you about that and, and some things that I learned. Now, Let's talk about the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Let's open there together. Matthew chapter 5. Last week, Christian brought us the word from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. And in it, Jesus started preaching the kingdom. He started to gather helpers for the kingdom. And he demonstrated the power of the kingdom. Matthew, the whole time, has been setting up this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus and John the Baptist Baptist have both proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent. And now we arrive at one of the most consequential passages in all of Scripture for every believer. It's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. It contains the norms of this kingdom... The demands of the kingdom, what relationships look like in the kingdom, among many other things that have to do with the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom and Jesus as the king. In short, and in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. It is the kingdom manifesto. The Sermon on the Mount describes what human life and community look like when they come under the loving and gracious rule of God. Now, let me repeat that for you. The Sermon on the Mount describes what human life and community look like when they're brought under the loving and gracious rule of God. It describes the differences between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. It's not exhaustive, nor does it contain all the teaching of Jesus. Yet, it's a potent distillation of Christ's teaching. And it's still binding and relevant for every believer. Therefore, we should pay attention. And we should hold it in high regard. With that in mind, we're going to slowly... Walk through the Sermon on the Mount and digest in deep ways what Jesus has to say to us as a church. Are you ready for that? 
Suffice to say, it's going to be much warmer outside by the time we're done with this mini-series within Luke, within Matthew. At the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we encounter the Beatitudes. Maybe you see that heading in your Bible. The Beatitudes are a distillation of a distillation of Christ's teaching, a manifesto within a manifesto, if you will. And so, within our mini-series on the Sermon on the Mount, in our series in Matthew, we're going to have a micro-series on the Beatitudes. Over the next three weeks, we're going to mine as deep as we can get within 30 to 40 minutes of each of these statements. We won't be able to reach the depths. There's always deeper we can go with each of these. But we're going to get as deep as we can. And I'll start this week with the first three Beatitudes. Andrew, Pastor Andrew, will expound the following three. And I'll wrap up on March 5th with the last two and the following verses. But each week we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Are you ready? Let's stand together without any more explanation and without any more ado and read Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, we come to your word now, open-hearted. We want to receive what you have to say to us. Spirit, we pray that you would open these things so that we might understand them, apply them to our lives. We ask this now in your name, Jesus, amen. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, like we saw in chapter four, Jesus is famous. He's famous. Look back again. Chapter 4, verse 24. So his fame spread. And again in verse 25. Great crowds followed him. He gathered these large crowds from all over Israel. All over the Judean countryside, outside of Jerusalem, and north by Galilee. So we can picture in our mind's eye, hundreds of people coming out to Jesus. Coming to Jesus in order to hear him preach this simple message that he had, but maybe more likely in order to come to him for healing. Those are the two things that Matthew tells us he's been focusing on so far in his ministry in chapter four. We aren't given much of a timeline, but that's what he's been focusing on. 
But now Jesus is going to do something slightly different than those two things. Jesus is going to take the posture of a teacher, and he's going to sit his disciples down, remove himself from the crowd, and he's going to teach. We typically call this whole section the Sermon on the Mount. I've already called it that this morning. We're going to keep calling it that because that's what we know it as. But really, what we call the Sermon on the Mount is not really a sermon like we would typically understand it. For one thing, if you just read the Sermon on the Mount, if I just stood up here and read it to you, we'd be done in a little under 15 minutes, which isn't much of a sermon, uh, if I've got to be honest. Rather, I think the, the pastor theologian John Stott was right when he referred to this sermon, again, as a distillation of the teaching of Jesus, which he gave on one occasion that he called a holiday summer school. Maybe this is many sitting downs of the disciples on the side of a hill. So we might call this section of Matthew the teaching on the hill. Luke records a lot of the same information in his gospel. So we can't fault these gospel authors with doing their best to condense the teaching of Jesus at this particular point in his ministry down to something readable, right? The apostle John in his gospel, he said that he couldn't capture everything Jesus said in, in, in one book or many, many volumes. Jesus removes himself from the crowd and he takes his disciples to a more private location where they would be able to hear him, the side of a hill. And at this side of the hill, apparently more and more people would be able to come. They would be accommodated there. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's the crowds that wonder. So we have the setting. Jesus is on a hill in Galilee, outside of Capernaum, getting ready to teach the disciples what it means to belong to the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to start with giving his disciples eight beatitudes, which I've mentioned are the norms of the kingdom of heaven. The beatitudes are the norms of the kingdom of heaven. The eight things encapsulate what the people of this kingdom will look like. We shouldn't understand them as eight different people or descriptions of eight different individuals or eight things to be separated from one another. Rather, they make up the standard definition of every believer in the gospel. They're the norms. These eight things are what every Christian should be. They're interconnected. They flow through one another. Okay. But what is a beatitude? What's a beatitude? Why do we call them that? That's not a word we would typically use. <clears throat> Notice at the beginning of each of these statements, the word blessed. Beatitude comes from, from the Latin word used to translate the Greek word that Matthew originally used here, probably to translate Jesus's Aramaic word that he used. Remember, the standard language of the Bible that was read for centuries was Latin. Okay, so beatitude is from the Latin. Maybe you've noticed as I've preached these last several months, I don't talk about language that much. Maybe you've noticed that. I don't bring up, bring up Greek words or, or Latin words. And that's, that's intentional. And if you have a question about that, you can ask me later. But sometimes you have to. 
And I think right now is one of those instances. This Greek word that Matthew uses is makarios. Makarios. So some traditions have called these phrases makarisms. Maybe that's what you know them as. The makarisms of Jesus. Again, not a word that we would typically use. It doesn't help us much at all. What's a makarism? What's a beatitude? And for that matter, what does it mean to be blessed? And maybe you're starting to understand the difficulty in translating this very first word. It's, in its most common usage, makarios can simply mean happy. So it could be read, happy are the poor in spirit. But in English, happiness or happy carries a lot of psychological and cultural baggage. Okay? And as Christians, we want to rightfully stand up against the, our worldly cultural assumption that a good life is really just the mere pursuit of happiness. That that's what a good life is, as an emotional state. So we may want to translate this word, makarios, in a different way, maybe without all that baggage. Okay, so another legit translation could be something like, approved are the poor in spirit. Okay, or, or maybe even favored are the poor in spirit. That's, that's much closer to what Jesus means, right? That includes the objective declaration of God upon the blessed. Does that make sense? God is declaring something here. But it has a weakness. It's almost completely void of any subjective sense of approval. It doesn't have any emotion to it. Approved are those of God. Jesus' statement here has both the subjective emotion of the blessed and the objective declaration of the blesser. You following with me? So finding a word that captures both of those things is really difficult. If we're going to use something other than blessed, one particular word might not do the trick. We might need a whole phrase, okay? Something like, I have gladdening, gladdening good news for those who are poor in spirit. I have gladdening good news for those who are poor in spirit. That gets the whole point. It's good news from God declared over someone that makes them happy or joyful. But it's convoluted. I don't like it very much. And who's going to memorize that? Right? These are supposed to be memorized. So what should we use? I'd love to hear your thoughts afterward. Maybe you've got the magic word. But my vote is for blessed. I feel blessed and I'm declared blessed. God is himself, the one who is blessed. In God is the fullness of blessing. We add nothing to God that he becomes more blessed. And so I receive my blessing from him. To be blessed now means I've received my blessing from God. And to be blessed by God, well, that makes me pretty happy. Plus, it's easy to remember. And it fits really nicely into our English Bible tradition. The word has the objective content we need from the blesser and the emotional content that we need to feel joy about these things. We can't lose that. We could even call these sentences the blessed 
description of the citizens of heaven. The blessed description of the citizens of heaven. So we're going to stick with that word, okay? We're going to stick with that word. Now that we have all of this nuance and we understand it a bit, and I promise we won't spend this much time on every other individual word. Okay, so we have the setting. We know where Jesus is. He's brought his disciples to this place, the site of a hill in Galilee. We know what a beatitude is and what it means to be blessed. So now, let's look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In each of these beatitudes, we have two parts. You can see it clearly here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the first half. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the second half. The first half seems to be like a description of someone, the poor in spirit. And the second half seems to be the blessing the person receives. But remember, these statements aren't about eight different individuals, eight different types of people. It's not about that. These are eight norms. These are patterns for every believer. These will be true, in other words, of every believer in the kingdom. So instead of understanding the first half as a description of someone, we should understand it like this. The first half of the beatitude is the responsibility of every citizen in the kingdom of heaven. The second half is the privilege of every citizen in the kingdom of heaven. First half is the responsibility Second half is the privilege. Responsibility, privilege. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, we know it doesn't mean to be poor materially or to lack possessions or money. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says something really similar to this. He says, blessed are you who are poor. But that's not what Matthew records here. He says, poor in spirit, intentionally. Psalm 34 might be helpful as we try to figure this out. King David wrote the psalm, someone who lacked nothing materially. He says this in Psalm 34, 7. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Now, we talk like this. We talk like this all the time. Oh, that poor guy just stubbed his toe. That poor kid just dropped her ice cream cone. We don't mean materially poor. We mean that they're emotionally down and that we are expressing our pity. The scriptures often use this kind of language of the poor to talk about a lowly and vulnerable spiritual state. Jesus is going to continue to draw upon Psalm 34 throughout these blessings. For those in Jesus' culture, because of this understanding of Scripture and the poor, wealth went with worldliness, and poverty went with godliness in metaphor. So to be poor in spirit means that a person has confessed that they are needy. They need something from the Lord. They lack something spiritually. One of the best pictures Jesus gave of this idea was the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. Do you remember it? The Pharisee and the tax collector? 
If you don't, it, it goes something like this. The Pharisee is standing and he's praying to God in the temple. Uh, he gives God first a self-righteous resume in his prayer of all the things that he does. And then he thanks God that he's not like other sinners and points at this tax collector kneeling right by him and says, especially like that guy. Thank you for not making me like him. He fails to recognize and repent of his own sin. He's deluded. He's deluded in his self-justification. That's the point of the parable. But the tax collector who's kneeling by him, well, Jesus tells it like this. He says, the tax collector standing far off, that is, far away from the presence of the Lord, would not even lift his eyes up to the heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. This is the beginning of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin and that by faith we can be saved. Jesus died for something. Jesus died for sin. To be poor in spirit means that we recognize our complete reliance upon God's grace. We lack what, it, what we need to come close to God. We're unable to save ourselves. We're stained with sin and have no hope apart from the cross. We carry a heavy burden that only he can take away. So those like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who justify their actions and lean upon their good works, they are not poor in spirit. So repentance starts here in a recognition of our neediness. It starts with the realization that we, we need to change. That only God can help us. Those who are poor in, in spirit have tried a bunch of ways to self-justify, to be good and be righteous, and then they realize they can't do it. Or they're confronted with their sin. It comes right up against their face like a dog having their nose rubbed in their poo, we realize the effect of sin on our lives and it breaks us down. That is being poor in spirit. This first beatitude is really the first step in a long line. And each beatitude will build off of the previous one. But look at the blessing that accompanies this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the only blessing or privilege, the second half of the statement, that's mentioned twice. In verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about that beatitude at length in a couple of weeks. But interestingly enough, the first beatitude is paired with that last one. They form a bracket around the rest, and that's intentional. In biblical interpretation language, we call this an inclusio, an inclusio. It forms a set of presentable ideas, an enclosed statement. It boils down to this. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be these things, starting with being poor in spirit. Confess your sins. Confess your neediness before the Lord. 
your poverty of righteousness, you might say. To those who do these things belongs the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. Dwell on that. Dwell on that truth. Do you want to belong in the kingdom of heaven? It starts here. Have you recognized your neediness before the Lord lately? Is it something we normally do in our lives? None of these statements are one-time events. These are characteristics of a Christian every day. They describe us, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are needy people who continually need God's grace. Amen? Amen. Do you need God's grace? Yeah, I certainly do. And even if you're a longtime Christian and someone who's received God's grace over and over and over throughout your life, it's right to recognize your continued need of him and your inability to walk this Christian life without the Holy Spirit and without Jesus. So let's confess this morning. Confess our sins and confess that we're poor. We lack righteousness in ourselves. and We need God's. We require God's riches of righteousness. Amen? Let's confess that. Second, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. With our long discussion of the blessed, that word, how we understand that, the Greek, all of that, we might start to think that this beatitude is a little bit paradoxical, right? We could even translate the first half of this statement as, happy are those who are unhappy. Thank you for that laugh. (laughs) What in the world would Jesus mean by that? As I've hinted at before, there's, there's many different layers. There's many different layers to these beatitudes that we can mine into and dig into. There's levels. We could spend a lot of time on each of these. For instance, I think a helpful question here is this in regards to the second beatitude. Here's a helpful question. What kind of sorrow can it be which brings the joy of Christ's blessing to those who feel it? What kind of sorrow do you need to feel to enjoy Christ's blessing? Could it possibly be mourning over a loved one who's recently died? I think that's an interesting layer to uncover, to think about. Blessed are those who mourn. Usually we think of mourning in terms of death. And Ecclesiastes 7, verses 2 through 3 says, it's, it's better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Get this, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The scriptures tell us that it's good to mourn death. Good for us. And it's even preferable to feasting. And that sadness, real expression of grief over death of a loved one, that can help us process that loss and bring joy in the long term. But that's just one layer of what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn. 
I think there's more here. He could also be talking about mourning over sin. And we look, when we look out into the world, right, we're, we're confronted by the fact that there is sin all around us. It's inescapable. Our world is given over to sin. John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, famously said, and I agree with him, that our culture is a culture of death. We live in a culture of death that celebrates death. Should we not mourn over the fallen nature of our world and our neighbors who are steeped in it? Should it not cause us great grief to look out into our society and see injustice and poverty and corruption and disregard for human life and the glorification of sexual immorality and unending war? Yeah, we should grieve over that, right? We can even recognize the fallen nature of creation, how beautiful it is, and yet it's broken. Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation groans in the pains of childbirth. Should we not groan too with it as creatures? And we would be right to. In the end, upon the return of Christ, we'll be comforted, as this says in verse 4, because all things will be made right. Sin will be laid to waste. Creation will be restored. Praise the Lord. Man, I look forward to that. Do you? But we can go a layer deeper here. We can go to the heart of what Jesus is telling us. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin. It's one thing to be poor in spirit and to confess your sin, to recognize your neediness. Contrition over sin, mourning over sin. That's another thing altogether. You can confess, as many do, that you're not perfect. I make mistakes. In fact, there's many people in the world who openly confess their sin and they relish in it. They party in their sin, they love their sin. It defines them, even. But to mourn over sin, that's what the kingdom of heaven requires of its citizens. They recognize that sin is an affront to the holiness and glory of God. The citizens do. These citizens understand that their sin is self-destructive and that they've brought God's wrath upon themselves. Romans chapter 1. Mourning over sin starts with right understanding of God. Mourning over sin comes from rightly fearing the Lord who is our judge. Does your sin cause you grief? Does your sin move you to weep? That you know the truth and yet? Since taking this post at Lake Morton Community Church, I've talked a lot about joy. Maybe you've picked up on that. I want to see the people of God express the joy of the Lord. But joy comes after mourning. Joy comes after grief. If you've not cried out to God in your life, in grief over your sin, I call upon you to do that today. 
if your sin has not grieved you in light of the goodness and holiness of God, then by the Spirit be moved this morning to grieve. Blessed are those who mourn. We need to mourn over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn. And here's the promise, the privilege, for they shall be comforted. Do you want joy? Do you want joy in your life? And paradoxically, you've got to start with mourning. Do you want to be comforted by the Holy Spirit who is our comforter? Mourn over your sin. Call out to God, confessing your need, your brokenness, your sorrow. Jesus does not keep us in our grief. He restores us. He restores us to right relationship with him. That is a relationship filled with the joy of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, after all. You recall that? We have to mourn over our sin to be comforted by God's grace. Third, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So if confessing our neediness of God's grace because of our sin comes first, that we're poor in spirit, and mourning over that, that sin accompanies that confession, then how does meekness fit in? There's another word that we don't use very often in English. When was the last time you used the word meek? But meekness pops up in our Bible reading from time to time. For instance, we, we read in Numbers chapter 12, that Moses was very meek, the meekest of all men. Uh, funny something to say, uh, as the author of that book, to call yourself the meekest of all men. Or Isaiah chapter 29, which says that the meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. But what does it mean to be meek? Meekness is a kind of self-effacing humility. In that Numbers 12 passage, Moses is right. Moses is called meek because he doesn't defend himself before his accusers, but falls on his face and relies upon the Lord for his defense. That's the kind of attitude we're talking about here. That's meekness. Meekness has to do with how we relate to other people. So we might say, meekness means that we have a humble and gentle attitude toward others. Because we understand who we are before God. We are sinners. We're poor in spirit. We mourn before God over our sin. And meekness is that attitude extended to other people. It's the complete opposite of arrogance. Someone who is meek lets themselves be defined by God. Let me say that again. Someone who is meek lets themselves be defined by God. Rightly defined by God. The arrogant assert that they are better than they really are. They define themselves. Take the Pharisee in that parable of Jesus. He was arrogant because he didn't have the right view of himself in the light of his sinful state. He had acted sinfully toward others because of that false view of himself. Now, if that Pharisee had done what the tax collector did and cried out to God because of his sin and mourned over it, and then extended love to his brother, the tax collector, 
that would have been a display of meekness. You know, one thing that always seems to come up when talking about meekness, no matter where you are in Scripture, is the old Christian cliche that goes something like this. Maybe you've heard it. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness isn't weakness. And in a sense, that's true. If you define weakness as passivity or indecision, Christians are not to be passive people who can't choose right and wrong. That's not meekness. But meekness in the eyes of the world will always look like weakness. Always. In our materialistic, self-centered, arrogant culture, we're taught to assert ourselves and show ourselves to be better than we really are. If you're not living as a narcissist, you're not going to gain anything. We live in an arrogant age where people try to grab what they can no matter the cost. That's the opposite of meekness. Jesus says, again, paradoxically in our culture, the meek will inherit the earth. Those who have the right view of themselves will actually obtain everything. Those who see things in themselves as under God will inherit the land. Say it another way, those who see themselves as completely unworthy of anything God can give them will inherit everything he created. It's the exact opposite of what the world believes. It's not those who express their will to power that will gain everything. It's those who acknowledge before God and others their need of Jesus Christ, their poverty of righteousness, who will inherit the earth. This promise will be literally true in the new heavens and the new earth. Those who will be there will be citizens of the kingdom of heaven who understand that they don't deserve anything. It will be the meek. Those who are completely satisfied in Christ who will inherit the earth. Those who are satisfied in Jesus Christ, King of Kings, will gain everything. Now is the time to be meek. Now is the time to recognize with a realistic eye your worth before the Lord. We have sinned. And we deserve nothing less than death. Not much more to be said. Not many more of your good works can you lean upon. In fact, none. And yet... Out of his great love for us, God sent his only son to take our place. We rebelled against God, but he welcomes us back as sons and daughters. And so now, the greatest definition for you is that you are a son or daughter of God. A co-heir with Christ in his kingdom. That's who you are if you believe the gospel. It's not a weak thing to realize your need for a savior. If that's what you're holding on to this morning, then you need to hear, blessed are those who are meek. The meek understand the weight of their sin and they confess it. Citizens of heaven mourn over their sin, knowing that only Christ can comfort them. They recognize that they are poor in spirit. They have a right view of themselves in light of God's holiness. And they conduct themselves with gentleness and humility to the world. That's what these three first B 
Beatitudes boil down to. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And blessed are the meek. They're those who understand the gospel. Who understand themselves in light of God's goodness and holiness. And his expression of Jesus Christ to you. Do you belong to the kingdom of heaven in light of these three things? Or do you need to get confessing and mourning over sin? These are only the first three. So I'm excited to see what's next in Jesus' manifesto for his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, this church this morning recognizes its need for you. Lord, we have sinned. We are poor. We lack your righteousness. We need your righteousness, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give that to us. And Lord, we mourn over our sin. We recognize that it is an affront to your holiness, that despite your love and goodness, we continue to sin. Lord, let let that grieve our hearts this morning just as it grieves you. And Lord, let us be meek in all of our dealings. Let us keep before us the truth that we are poor in spirit. And as we deal with other people in our lives, let us not think that we are better. Help us not to have arrogant presumptions about ourselves, but to understand that we are needy creatures before you. And ultimately, Lord God, we pray that you would give us an understanding that you have filled those needs, that you have comforted us, that you have brought us into your kingdom, and that by your grace we will inherit the earth. We thank you for these blessings. Lord, I pray that those here listening, who these are true of, would would leave today feeling blessed. Bless us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.